This is the East Trauma Cast. Welcome to our next Trauma Cast. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Educational Committee and Trauma Cast. I'm not sure when or how this topic came about as an idea for Trauma Cast, but a few weeks ago when I had to take an elderly lady with multiple comorbidities to the operating room for debridement just as my call started, I was thinking about this upcoming Trauma Cast and wishing I knew what we'd say today. So with great anticipation, we're here to discuss Morel-Lavelle lesions. This is Lauren Dudas, your new TraumaCast workgroup leader from Morgantown, West Virginia. We have a few exceptional guests today. Please introduce yourself, let us know who you are, what kind of center you work at, and your experience with these lesions. First, we have Martin. Hi, uh, Martin Zelensky. I'm a trauma surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, in uh, I really will defer to, to Henry Schiller, my partner at Mayo. Uh, he's, he was the really the driving force behind the, the guideline that we've developed and the research that we, we did back a few years ago. All right, Henry. Hi, I'm Henry Schiller. I'm also a trauma surgeon at uh, Mayo Clinic of Rochester. Carrie. Hey, everybody. Um, it's Carrie Valdez. I, I hope that if you've ever listened to the trauma cast, you recognize my voice. I'm extraordinarily proud to turn over the lead trauma cast to Lauren Dudas. I'm happy to have Simon Fitzgerald again on as a moderator. All right. And Simon, remind everyone who you are and where you're from. Sure. Uh, this is uh, Simon Fitzgerald. Thanks again for having me. I'm a, a trauma and critical care surgeon at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. All right. And with that, I'll turn the trauma cast over to you, Simon. All right. Thanks. I guess, first of all, to get us started, uh, you know, we mentioned already, uh, we're talking about morel Lavalle lesion, and correct me if my pronunciation is, uh, is not standard, uh, but uh, how can we introduce this topic? What can you tell us about morel Lavalle lesion and the relevant history? Henry, why don't we start with you? Okay, well, you know, I had always uh, seen these uh, large uh, closed degloving injuries and uh, didn't know what they were called until I, I talked to one of our orthopedic trauma surgeons who, who gave me uh, the name Morel Lavalle lesions. We, that, that's how we pronounce it. <laughs> and uh, we had been treating a lot of these and there was a lot of variation in my group. We had 10 surgeons at the time and some people were doing percutaneous drainage and some people were going to uh, the OR with it. And uh, I was frustrated that there really was not a lot in the literature to give us guidance on what to do. And so we had monthly uh, research meetings. I think this one was at Martin's house. And uh, I proposed it as a research topic. And uh, Paul Nickerson, who was one of our residents, took it on and uh, reviewed our experience. And turns out that, that we did have a significant number that we were caring for, and uh, we could draw some conclusions from, from the review of our experience. So you mentioned a closed degloving injury. What does that mean exactly? Well, the, the Morel-Lavalle lesion occurs when the skin is ripped off of the underlying muscular fascia. Uh, typically, it would be with a blunt trauma. It would be associated with uh, high energy often associated with uh, fractures, uh, which, which is how our orthopedic surgeons knew about them. And you can imagine peeling uh, chicken uh, skin off of a uh, chicken. And uh, oftentimes we would miss them. I mean, I, I think we still miss them. To, these are usually severely injured patients. They've got other issues going on. Uh, looks a lot like 
just terrible bruising when, when uh, you round on them clinically, but we were getting a lot of patients coming back with these large uh, fluid collections under the skin. And uh, uh, in retrospect, you know, the, these, these were injuries that, that we were missing uh, at the time of the uh, index hospitalization. And Henry, and, uh, this is Carrie. In, in your paper for your um, practice management guidelines on your center, you said 25% were motor vehicle collisions. What are, what are some common other injury patterns that we should maybe have a little bit more attention to this injury occurring? Well, uh, uh, 25% were motor vehicle crashes. When, when we submitted the paper, one of the reviewers uh, was upset with us because uh, mm. uh, they felt that there should be, uh, that, that it should be more associated with uh, higher injury patterns. But uh, uh, we, we were seeing these from, uh, from even falls. And one of my hypotheses was that uh, we, we were seeing uh, uh, morella Lavalle lesions from basically any, any injury that caused shear on the skin. My hypothesis was that, hey, the, the, the heavier patients, uh, that we were seeing uh, uh, fat fracturing, and uh, that, didn't, that didn't pan out in the paper. There was no association with BMI, but uh, basically any, any mechanism of injury where there's shearing of the skin uh, from, from uh, underlying muscle. And, and sure enough, most, most of our patients were hip, thigh, pelvis, which, which goes along with uh, what the orthopedic uh, reviewer uh, said about the paper. I think to point out is uh, a lot of people get them confused with just general run-of-the-mill hematomas. You know, these are closed degloving, meaning fascia and the underlying uh, fat has, has sheared off rather than just a simple hematoma or bruise. Right. And, I, and that's the point I was going to make and to clarify is that you were describing your paper, a shearing of uh, the subcutaneous tissue off the fascia, which rips the lymphatics and blood vessels, which constantly leak into that dead space. Right. And that's why the body has a hard time uh, healing that without intervention at times. And that's, is that why these lesions are clinically relevant? Yeah, they're clinically relevant because they go on to, to form these chronic fluid collections. And uh, again, Hard to distinguish, as Martin said, from just uh, uh, hematoma. Uh, I think the only distinguishing feature that, that I can pick up is that the patients who have morella valle lesions have much, much more pain than you would expect uh, from, from simple bruising or hematoma. So you'd mentioned that you think we're, we're missing a lot of these. Um, how common are they? What's sort of the incidence among our, our kind of blunt trauma patients if you have a sense, and what's the uh, morbidity of, of missing the diagnosis? Well, I think they're, they're I, I can't give you an exact incidence. I, you know, they're, they're fairly uncommon. Uh, we, we see, uh, you know, 2000 trauma contacts a year, roughly. And uh, I don't have the paper in front of me, but we had only uh, 80 lesions. So it's not frequent, but uh, again, the, the morbidity is, let, let me back up. Patients come with these large fluid collections. Usually it's after they've been discharged from the hospital. Uh, these things go on to be these chronic fluid collections. In some cases, they cause pain. In some cases, uh, there can be infection, but they're just really uncomfortable for patients. It's like walking around with, a, with a, a big water bag on your hip or thigh. And since we published the paper, I've been getting calls from people all over the country who have Morel-Lavalle lesions, 
and they can't find anyone who knows what to do with them or mm. care for them. And, uh, you know, I'm getting, I'm in Minnesota. I'm getting patients from uh, mission. I'm getting patients from Vermont, uh, uh, from New York. They're all, they're all contacting me asking, uh, if I'll see them for this. The other thing I think is important, you know, we, we've mentioned that it's usually associated with high impact injuries and, um, patterns. I'm, I'm also wondering if we're pretty dramatically underestimating the real um, incidence of the lesions because patients will be discharged, you know, either within a few days of, of their injury or even from the emergency department. And I wonder if there are patients out there that develop them, may not uh, have a chronic problem with them, but we're missing them because they're either not uh, being evaluated every day or weren't evaluated. My question then is if, you know, if you have a patient with significant blunt trauma struck by a car in a car crash, um, are you doing additional imaging on patients besides our sort of our pan scan that we might do? And who are you deciding to image on and how are you deciding to, uh, what, and what modality are you using to diagnose the Morel-Lavalet lesion? You know, we, we do the, the standard pan scan. We're not looking specifically for things. We, we will suspect it uh, if there's an area of uh, ecchymosis and patient has more pain there than, uh, than, than we would expect. We'll go back and look at the scan. If you see uh, what looks like a big fluid collection or hematoma under the skin, the fascial level, that, that'll also cue us in. But uh, again, it's not so common that, that uh, we're picking up a lot of these acutely. But uh, yeah, area of ecchymosis uh, on scanning, big area of uh, fluid under the, uh, the, the skin, a lot of pain around an area of ecchymosis that uh, is more than, than we would suspect. And again, lo located around the, uh, the hip, the uh, thigh and uh, pelvis. And, and I think the point you made uh, that I would um, emphasize is that, right, these are tracking along the fascia. Uh, you know, if you have a fluid collection tracking along the fascia in, in a blunt trauma patient, then I think they have to have a high index of suspicion for this injury. And my experience is that the radiologists aren't necessarily calling that. Do you have radiologists that are recognizing this and bringing it to your attention? No, no, we're, we're recognizing it. And, uh, you know, since, since we uh, wrote the paper, we, we've uh, basically made a practice guideline out of uh, the, uh, the algorithm we proposed in the paper. And we'll, we'll go and we'll aspirate them. And uh, if it's less than 50 cc's, then, then we're good. And if it's more than 50 cc's, then uh, we, have, we have taken these people to the uh, OR acutely. And uh, that works out very well. I think it's, uh, it, again, it didn't come out in the paper that there was any difference in outcome if you caught it early before they formed a scar capsule or later. But uh, boy, I, I was surprised by that because uh, I, I think they do heal better uh, if, if you catch them during uh, the first hospitalization. And Henry, I'm, I'm excited to get to your data. I really am. I want to back up just a little bit. So you pan scan somebody, they've got increased bruising, increased pain. You're suspicious that you've got a, a lesion there. Do you feel that all patients need to go through MRI? to then kind of identify if it's truly a morale level A. And there's like, I don't know, five different ways to pronounce this. So this is the way I've always pronounced it. Do they all go to MRI or are you taking these patients and, and putting them through your algorithm just based on your CAT scan? Well, we'll take them and, and uh, go 
just on the CAT scan, I, I think it's uncommon that we get an MRI on these folks. Yeah, I think there were some MRIs in that paper, and I can't remember specifically why those patients, but I bet it was more related to the orthopedic injury or L lavalet. Because the other thing that we'll, we'll do is ultrasound. They actually can do a reasonable job of guesstimating the CC volume, of course, just by the dimensions. And then uh, we can, you know, interpolate extrapolate to see how many uh, if that's above or below 50 cc's you were selected as our speakers because there isn't a lot of literature on the topic and i think that's why you wrote uh, the paper uh, in the journal of trauma and acute care surgery on your experience with morel lavalet lesions could you tell us a little bit about your paper and your experience with these lesions so the reason why we did the paper as you're alluding to is there really isn't much guidance out in the literature there are a few case series. I think ours, at least to 2014, was the biggest in, in the literature. Um, still not a, a huge experience, but enough we thought where we could get some relative guidelines out there to allow us to, to at least start treating patients with some informed uh, data. Uh, really where we, we came from on this is to make sure that we were not allowing for chronic uh, morel lava lay lesions and these seromas that cause a lot of pain and, and quality of life issues. Um, but we also, of course, don't want to overtreat and do too many procedures. Um, the guideline was written as a result of the paper um, where we ultimately we found a cutoff of 50 cc's where the recurrence risk, when it was higher than that, actually went up fairly dramatically. I think it went up from 33 to 88%. So more than a twofold increase in the recurrence when you just aspirated. And that's really where we had the cutoff therefore um, to recommend operative intervention to avoid the long-term recurrences and, and a lot of these quality. Of and what, when you say operative intervention, what is that, uh, what is your practice when you take them to the operating room? Well, in the acute phase, obviously it's gonna be evacuation of uh, hematoma and seroma and then uh, debridement of tissue. Some of the patients, of course, will have some necrotic skin changes that um, may make some challenging wounds, but by and large, given that they're open degloving, the, these will be, again, uh, open or closed, or excuse me, closed degloving, they'll be closed wounds. Um, so we'll, we'll ensure that we debride everything out. We'll usually lay a drain, maybe two, just depending on the size of, of the cavity and then close, close the skin. Some of them required vacuum dressings. And Henry, maybe you can um, add some more about the, the vac dressings. I don't remember where, where our cutoff was. On. Well, uh, uh, honestly, I think, I think the practices evolve over time. And again, the practices is different from acute versus uh, uh, chronic Morel-Lavalle lesions. So one, one thing uh, to, to keep in mind is that the skin is uh, ripped off of the underlying fascia and therefore the perforating vessels that supply the skin are disrupted. So placement of an incision for somebody who does not have uh, uh, skin ischemia should be over the center of the wound because you don't want to disrupt the longitudinal blood supply of what, what's essentially a, a skin flap. When you go in acutely, oftentimes there's uh, dead fat, there's uh, hematoma, and we evacuate all of that uh, because uh, that, that's going to be a barrier to skin adhesion. And uh, now I think we, we would simply lay drains and uh, close the skin. Nowadays, we're using incisional vac dressings. We didn't use them back then. When you have a chronic Morel-Lavalle lesion, we tried 
a number of things to try to uh, rough up the scar capsule uh, to get it to uh, adhere. And that included, you know, cautery, uh, leaving it open with uh, vac dressing, hoping that that would precipitate an immune response. And, you know, basically what, what we came up with in our, in our algorithm based on this paper is that if, if you go in for the chronic ones, which I, I'd say is, is the majority of the ones that we're going in on now, you uh, do a capsulectomy. And uh, it, it, in my own practice, I'm kind of a little bit beyond that. The capsulectomy, you, you're still worried about adherence of the skin to the underlying fascia. And it's usually in a difficult place to avoid ongoing shearing, which is going to lift the skin off of the underlying fascia. And so I've actually gone to not a complete capsulectomy, but capsulotomy, where, where I'm basically scoring the capsule, uh, making it look like a checkerboard, but using the scar of the capsule to tack to the underlying muscular fascia with uh, PDS sutures and then lying a drain. Postoperatively, uh, again, the, the, the goal is to try to have compression and avoid shearing. And for hip, buttock, thigh, uh, what I've found is recommending bicycle shorts for compression is the best way to get compression over the area. Just a good, good pair of spandex bike shorts. And then what, what I'm also concerned about is uh, uh, big movements uh, along the hip, which, which will shear these difficult to compress areas. So I'll send folks home with a knee immobilizer. Not that I need them to completely immobilize their knee, but it's, it's kind of there to avoid them from flexing their hip too much. It, it uh, tells them, uh, you know, be careful of this and uh, usually leave uh, drains in uh, until it's less than 30 cc's for two days in a row. But I continue to recommend the compression and the, uh, and the knee immobilizer now for, for about a month. Hey, Henry, can you comment on what you do with the capsule when it's on the fascia itself? Because you can do yeah. the circumferential portion you know, on the fat and the skin level. When you get down to the muscle, it can be a little bit trickier. Yeah, right. Henry, I, I'm just going to add on to uh, Martin's question. Like, pretend that you're talking to a second-year resident. What's this whole capsulotomy versus capsulectomy and, and the details that Martin just asked? Like, take us through it step-by-step. Step. How would you handle the case? Right. So when, when you go in on these and they're chronic, and usually by the time you're, you're a month out, certainly six weeks out, you form a fibrous scar capsule that is, is slick and you, you, can, you can aspirate the fluid, uh, but uh, unless that scar capsule has a reason to scar down and obliterate the dead space, you'll get a recurrence of the Morel-Lavalle lesion, which is why I think percutaneous drainage fails. So uh, when we go in on the chronic ones, we make an incision Oftentimes you find uh, little pearls, uh, they, 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 they actually look like kernels of corn of dead fat. You can find uh, what looks like old hematoma, but, but you know, debris in there. You take all of that out. And what, what uh, we used to do is completely excise the capsule from the subcutaneous space. Usually the skin flaps are thick enough that you're not worried about uh, uh, hurting the blood supply to, to the skin when you do that. 
And Martin is right that that uh, you continue you would continue to excise the scar capsule on the muscle, uh, sometimes on tendon, but it, that part is extremely challenging. So if you leave capsule behind, I think the principle is that you got to do something to that capsule to promote uh, an inflammatory response. And, you know, Martin's absolutely right. When we, uh, when we were on difficult parts, uh, you know, on bone or on tendon, we didn't, we didn't take the, the scar capsule off, but, but we would turn the, the electric artery up to 100 and we'd score it to try to uh, get it to be uh, inflamed and we'd scrape it with curettes. Tough to do, but if you do that, uh, you, you will get adherence. Uh, I have had some folks recur after doing a complete capsulectomy. It's, it's uh, usually the, the larger lesions. And that's why, uh, you know, I, part of my practice involves the Morello-Valle lesions, but part of my practice uh, includes uh, abdominal wall reconstruction. And I, I've got the same problems with chronic seromas when I do abdominal wall reconstructions. And what I'll do is I'll go in I'll score the capsule so that I can see subcutaneous fat through it. And uh, once I've scored the capsule and I'll, I'll score the capsule on the muscular side as well, I'll not resect the capsule now, but I'll use the capsule as a point of fixation. And I basically do as many quilting sutures of uh, OPDS to tack the skin down to the underlying fascia as, as, as I possibly can. And really it's, it's doing this part of it you know, either the capsulectomy or scoring the capsule or, or, or you know, so-called capsulotomy and quilting sutures, that that's what uh, makes you need to do a, a larger incision. I don't know. Does that make sense the way I described it? Yeah, yes. I, th I think that's great advice. And um, the, your paper has a very nice algorithm, uh, which seems to be most applicable to the acute um, diagnosis of acute Morel-Lavalle lesion. Basically, if the skin is not viable, it needs to be debrided, and that's a good candidate for a wound vac, may end up needing a, a skin graft. But if the skin is viable, then an aspiration, if it's small enough, less than 50 cc's, and then observation and compression does well. And if it's larger than that, then incision and drainage and closing over a drain. Uh, and I think that the, the tips that you just added on for a chronic lesion uh, were not as well described in the paper about how to obliterate that dead space when it's has that fibrous capsule. Uh, any other changes in your practice uh, that weren't well described in that paper now that's? I don't think so. I think, I think uh, uh, the, the, the big change, as you just said, is how to deal with that capsule on, on the, the large chronic ones, which uh, can continue to vex us. Are there any, any patient populations that you would kind of deviate from your algorithm? You know, like a patient that you're really concerned for their wound healing, poorly controlled diabetes, or is there a time that you would allow the skin to kind of form an eschar and try to percutaneously drain it? Or is it hard stop 50 mLs, you're going to take them to the operating room and open it up? Well, if we see ischemic skin, and, the, and again, that would be the acute phase. And uh, those tend to be the large ones where, where you, you outstrip the uh, ability of the uh, subdermal uh, subcutaneous plexus to keep the skin alive. If you've got dead skin, uh, you, you got to take care of it. And uh, I don't necessarily wait for it to become eschar, although 
Uh, some people will, you know, let it let it demarcate. Poorly controlled diabetics, smokers. Yeah, I think we still do this. You you, you kind of dance dance who you come with. We don't get to select these patients. What I'd say is, unless you lose a lot of skin from from the ischemia standpoint, we're not that worried about the the healing in these patients. And yeah, for for the chronic ones. If they're smokers, I'll, I'll tell them that they have to stop smoking and we'll, we'll do, uh, you know, nicotine tests to, to make sure. But, but for the uh, acute ones, you know, you, you, you deal with what's on your door. I would uh, agree with all he said. The only thing I would, you know, if you wait for an SCAR to form, you're also risking an infection. Um, so I, I would tend to do those sooner rather than later than yeah, and I, I agree with you, Martin, that, uh, you know, your goal is to try to take care of this before it's infected, because once it's infected, that's that's where you end up with the VAC dressings and uh, trying to decide, can you do a delayed primary skin closure? And it becomes much more much more complicated if there's infection. My, my other question is, how does uh, an associated fracture change your management? Often these are associated with fractures in the region. I'd say that uh, if there's a fracture that's uh, actually in the Morel-Lavalle lesion, then, then uh, we would bring our orthopedic surgeons in and you know, treat it essentially like an open fracture. Um, what, what we often find is that uh, you know, there's a fracture of uh, you know, anterior superior iliac spine. Usually it's an avulsion fracture and it doesn't require fixation, in which case, yeah, you try to just get the skin closed and healed as fast as you can without, uh, without infection. Um, a lot of times they'll use a different incision than you would need for the um, treatment of the morel lavalle as well. I'm just remembering one of the worst cases I saw this was uh, someone who was struck by a garbage truck and had a pretty large de closed degloving injury with a puncture wound there and associated fracture. So these can get pretty complicated. Any other strategies you have for in preventing infection in, in a contaminated sort of punctured uh, wound like this? Well, you know, we didn't, we didn't put this in the paper and Martin, uh, I, I'm hesitant to, to say it, but should I go there? Are you guys using beads or something like this? Yes, you, you antibiotic beads. Um, and uh, again, it's outside of what the paper is, but yeah, we've had some of the puncture wounds and, and it's that, that ASIS uh, that, that, that I can remember. Uh, and I think, yeah, you know, we, we, we see that with PEDS versus uh, motor fecal crashes. And I have come to embrace antibiotic beads in my practice. My, my partners think I embrace it too much, but uh, I've closed some of those wounds over uh, antibiotic beads and, uh, you know, maybe it's voodoo but uh, they, they've healed up okay. And uh, we don't have to do it that often, but if I see this fresh, I don't worry about it, but oftentimes uh, uh, over that ASIS, it starts as a, a little puncture wound and nobody has really noticed it. And uh, when it's been open for days, that's, that's when I say, okay, this is a contaminated space and I'm, I'm gonna leave antibiotic beads. Will you do that independent of a fracture? So you don't have an open or infected fracture? If, if, I, if I think that it's contaminated, uh, uh, I will. So, so again, if I, if I pick this up, uh, hey, patient comes in, uh, they've been in a crash and I see it, and I take it to the OR immediately. 
then I'd say, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put antibiotic beads in, but Hey, I rotate on service. I look and there's, there's this uh, area of skin loss and uh, it's been there for a few days and it's had a chance to be con- contaminated. What we used to do before the antibiotic beads is those were the patients that we would uh, do the vac uh, for a couple of days and then do a delayed primary skin closure. And now with antibiotic beads, I'll just put beads in and uh, close immediately over the beads. And, and any other changes in your, in your practice related to this that we haven't talked about? Or any other changes you see uh, maybe coming? No, I think uh, the the uh, you know capsulotomy as opposed to capsulectomy that 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 was an aha moment for me, and uh, I think that, that seems to work very well. And uh, again, very very controversial uh, even in our own group, but uh, antibiotic beads would be the other the other big practice change. And, and I think you also mentioned the use of, uh, of a incisional wound vac on some of these yes. as well. Yeah, I, I've become a huge fan of incisional vacs uh, over uh, incisions that, that you really want to heal well. I'm curious, Martin, do you do the same thing with the PDS capsule sutures as well? Do you guys have some uniformity across your group or is there still a lot of practice variation? Uh, I think there's probably still a lot of practice variation as far as the actual operative management. Um, you know, we don't standardize that to the degree where we standardize the decision to go to the operating room. Once you're in there, I think it's a little bit more of, you know, what you're used to and uh, those types of things. I certainly do quilting sutures um, on the larger ones. I bet Henry probably tends to do more than I would do there. Yeah, I would tend to do more vax or something like that on the particularly large uh, ones, but he has more experience doing it than I do. Yeah, and what I'd say is uh, this uh, revelation has come to me within the last 18 months, and as I looked at the paper for this podcast, and I called up our practice guideline, which is taken right from the paper, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to go to the group and uh, recommend that, that, that we add that in there as an option. What do you tell patients if this recurs? Are they discouraged? How, what do you tell them that we're going to do you know, differently this time um, to kind of prevent it from recurring again? Well, if it recurs, first, first of all, when, when, I, when I embark on these for the large ones, I, I tell them that, that it's likely that they're going to get a recurrence, that you take a, a large one and you make it a much smaller one, but it's, it's really hard to obliterate the, the really big ones first go round. And basically, if there's a recurrence, we go back in and uh, we do the same thing. The recurrence is, is generally smaller, you know, it, the, the smaller the lesion, the easier it is to take care of without getting a recurrence, but uh, can think of some patients that I've gone in two or three times until I got the thing completely obliterated. And uh, maybe the last question maybe should have been first. Uh, whenever I uh, present a topic that is named after someone, I try to figure out who it is we're talking about. So who is Morel Lavallee? Did that come up in uh, your research for the paper? I was going to say, to answer and follow on Simon's question, and how do you actually pronounce this person's name? <laughs> yeah, because us from New Jersey cut off all the letters and just make it roll off your tongue, Morel Lavelle. <laughs> okay, well, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think we have uh, some of the history uh, in, in the paper, and uh, I can't tell you who, who Morel, Lav- Morel Lavalle uh, were. Um, we pronounce it Morel Lavalle, when you when you Google it to, to have Google pronounce it, it says Morel Lavalee. Yes, uh, but uh, I don't know from my my uh, 
freshman uh, French in uh, high school sounds to me like it should be Morel Lavalle. So that's that's how I pronounce it. And uh, I, I think that's how we all pronounce it. But who knows if it's right? My, my wife is a Francophone, so I'll have to ask uh, before we produce the final episode. But I know uh, Maurice Morel Lavalle was a surgeon, a French surgeon who described the lesion in 1853. But that's about the extent of my knowledge on the topic. I'm a French Canadian, and, and we would say Morel Lavalle. Okay, well, I, I like Morel uh, Lavalle. I think that's great. <laughs> in residency, we just called it a Morel lesion to avoid the controversy. Well, that sounds like a mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, is, uh, before we wrap up, is there any other uh, important points or questions that we uh, want to, uh, to address? The only question, Martin, I have found in my training, I'm now five and a half years out of uh, a fellowship. Every single older surgeon, educator, when I have a, a morale level A lesion, it's like, leave it alone, wrap it up, don't touch it. And every single younger educator says, cut it open, put in drains, drain it out. Have you found that there's like a difference in kind of generational practice that you've experienced and, and you work with Dr. Schiller and I'm sure you work with other surgeons. Like is it, it has this kind of like how we treat this lesion progress change are we better or are we worse do we have no idea what we're doing do we just kind of like it's up to everyone just to say like we think this is what's going to be great but we don't really know i guess i would say the exact opposite dr schiller's i don't know what 15 years older than me and he would probably done most of them is my assumption it's definitely improved i mean we don't know we before our paper I mean, there was some in the literature, but there was no true guidance on what you should or shouldn't be doing with it. And so I think it comes back to your point of, you know, don't touch or touch based on the experience that the surgeon had within their own personal practice, most of whom probably never even heard the term morel lavalle. So I think it's definitely improving. And I think with more patience, more experience, maybe more studies, more studies, uh, I think the, the practice will improve. Well, if I, if I could comment too, uh, again, I, I'm getting patients calling me from, from all over because uh, my name is on this paper. And when you talk to them, they, they were told by their surgeons and their orthopedic surgeons, just wrap it and leave it alone. And uh, they, you know, they, they end up with these chronic lesions. So uh, again, breaking acute versus chronic you know, the, the, the vast majority of patients don't have these, they just have uh, ecchymosis. But the patients that do have these, uh, I think they benefit if you can keep them from going chronic. The ones who are chronic, they've, they've already failed that. And uh, it's very distressing to the patients. And uh, uh, once it's chronic, then you're left with uh, what to do with it. And I think that was the point behind, one of the major points behind the paper is trying to eliminate the patients that would develop chronic lesions. Yeah, well, I, I guess thank you for joining us on, on this TraumaCast. We appreciate your time and expertise. And I certainly have uh, at least a little more confidence, especially what to do with these chronic lesions that you described. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. 
So if you're searching for cutting edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.